Thanks for listening to our Look Up podcast. I'm Patricia. And I'm Greg. And we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in February in our Cosmic Diary. When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it is important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. Allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. February may be the shortest month of the year, but it is certainly not short of astronomical treats for our sky watchers. The moon acts as a celestial tour guide this month, highlighting some of the things for us to look at in our night sky. On February the 1st, early risers with a clear view of the southeastern horizon will see the waning crescent moon lying near the planet Venus. Also making an appearance in the dawn sky is Jupiter, which can be found to the upper right of Venus. At the beginning of the month, Saturn lies low down in the dawn sky, but will continue to get higher as each day passes. Keep an eye on both Venus and Saturn. On the 18th, Saturn and Venus will be in conjunction with Saturn lying below. The moon reaches new moon on the 4th of February, making this the best time of the month to observe deep sky objects. The Beehive Cluster is one object that is ideal to look at under dark sky conditions. Containing around 1,000 stars, this open star cluster is located in the constellation of Cancer and appears as a fuzzy spot on the sky when looked at with the naked eye. Use a pair of binoculars though and you'll see the stellar swarm that earned this cluster its name. Later on in the month, on the night of the 17th and 18th of February, the waxing gibbous moon will pass by the same cluster. Two astronomical treats await us on the night of the 13th of February. The first treat of the evening is the conjunction of Mars and Uranus. Uranus's magnitude, its brightness, borders on the edge of naked eye visibility, and the planet is often difficult to spot in the night sky. However, on this night, Mars provides observers with the opportunity to locate this distant ice giant. Using a pair of binoculars, find Mars and you'll spot blue-green Uranus in the same field of view. The second treat of the evening sees the moon having a close encounter with the Hyades cluster, a distinctive V-shaped pattern of stars representing the head of Taurus the bull. The bright orange-red star Aldebaran, which marks the eye of the bull, is not a member of the Hyades cluster. Aldebaran is much closer to the Earth than the Hyades, but just happens to lie along our line of sight to the cluster, making it appear to be a cluster member. February's full moon is the second of the three supermoons of 2019 and occurs on the 19th of February. This month's supermoon is the closest of the three, so don't miss it because the next supermoon as good as this one requires a wait of almost eight years. On the same night, the full moon is near blue-white Regulus, the brightest star in the constellation of Leo. Regulus, also known as the heart of the line, lies close to the ecliptic, the sun's apparent path across the sky throughout the year. Being so close to the ecliptic, Regulus often participates in lunar and planetary occultations and conjunctions. Of the five brightest naked-eye planets, Mercury is often said to be the most challenging to see. 
Being the innermost planet, Mercury tends to get lost in the glare of the Sun, and this is why Mercury is often referred to as the elusive planet of our solar system. But on the 27th of this month, Mercury reaches its greatest eastern elongation, so be sure to catch a glimpse of the planet lying above the western horizon just after sunset. If you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to at ROGAstronomers. You may also want to check out our night sky highlights blog on our website, rmg.co.uk, but now it's time for our cosmic news. Welcome to the cosmic news part of our podcast. So every month, Greg and I will choose a story that is broken within the last month. And we'll pick stories that we found interesting and would like to share with you. And so we'll tell you a little bit about those stories. And you'll then have a chance to vote for your favorite news story on our Twitter poll, which you'll find on our Twitter account at ROG Astronomers. So, Greg, what have you chosen for us this month? As it turns out, over the course of the last month or two, the moon has been uh, in the news in a big way. Uh, one of the ways that it was in the news was over the Christmas period. That was very big news. Um, the Chinese Space Agency uh, had landed uh, a probe called Chang'e 4. Um, I am probably pronounced that completely wrong. I do apologise if I did. Um, this was uh, a big deal because it was the first soft landing on the far side of the moon. So this is the part of the moon that we can't see from here on Earth. Um, the moon does spin, but it spins just as fast as it moves around the Earth on its orbit. So it always keeps one side facing towards us. We call this tidal locking. And that means that there is no way of directly communicating with the other side of the moon. So any uh, probe that wants to go to the other side of the moon, it needs to have another satellite in orbit somewhere uh, visible to both it and, of course, to us here on the Earth. And this mission is part of an ongoing and escalating set of missions that the Chinese Space Agency is working on, um, which is designed to eventually end with a crude landing of the, on the moon, so people going to the moon in perhaps the, the 2030s, so not that far away, um, and maybe, just maybe, even an outpost at some point. They were probably looking a fair way off for that one. The... Lander itself contained um, a small biosphere, believe it or not, with um, seeds and insect eggs in it in order to be able to determine whether plants and animals can grow and even live on the surface of the moon. Um, not exposed to the harsh elements because that would not have worked. Yeah. There's no atmosphere on the moon yeah. um, and the temperature wildly changes from about oh, yeah. 150 degrees Celsius in bright sunlight to minus 100 degrees Celsius in darkness it's yeah. a massive change so for any experiment to be successful they would have to be protected from those harsh elements in the exactly. first place exactly but the thing they're testing is uh, low gravity so we have quite a lot of tests which of course going on in the international space station in what we call microgravity where there's basically uh, effectively no gravity we of course know what it's like to live here on the earth but we don't know very much about the middle ground where like the moon, where you've got one-sixth of the Earth's gravity. Is that enough to allow normal functions to continue? Or do you have the same problems you have with the ISS, where growth and all sorts of other things are messed up by the lack of gravity? Yeah, because obviously organisms, plants, etc. have evolved 
for our, the Earth's gravity. And exactly. so to understand how they could adapt or if they could adapt to other gravities, we have to take these things out there. Absolutely. The interesting thing is that the seeds actually did germinate on the surface of the moon. Um, however, unfortunately, the experiment did fail after only nine days instead of the intended 100, because although uh, the idea of the biosphere was to keep everything at a solid 24 degrees Celsius, unfortunately, the out external temperature dropped to minus 52 and a failure of the system meant that everything froze. So unfortunately, those seeds did, uh, the plants did unfortunately die before we got a, a good chance to look. But at least they do germinate, so that's something. The rest of the mission continues on, and we very much hope that it goes well, because a, a further agency working in space uh, will really help the advancement of uh, space exploration. But that's not my main story. That's just a side one. Uh, my main story today is something perhaps a little bit more accessible than the other side of the moon, um, but also perhaps just a little bit scarier. So space uh, isn't empty, far from it, um, particularly within the relatively local region of our own solar system. We have, of course, the planets, we have asteroids, moons, comets, the solar wind, various dust and gas left over from the formation of the solar system. Basically, it's a mess out there. There's yeah. lots of stuff going on. And all of this stuff is blowing around all over the place. Now, inevitably, some of these things are going to collide with one another. Big collisions are rare, simply because there aren't that many big things out there. But small collisions are very, very, very common. The Earth, as it turns out, is hit by about 33 metric tons of material every day. Wow. Now, the majority of that stuff is so small that it burns up on entry. And most likely, many people listening will have seen these. These are what we call meteors. Um, now, we do come into a bit of a problem with terminology here. People listening at home may well have heard of three different names with respect to these. Um, meteors, meteorides, and meteorites. Um, and it doesn't help that they're so similar. Yeah. So the meteor is the flash of light that we see. It's the shooting star, which is the uh, perhaps more common name for them. Um, the meteoroid is the object which is actually producing that meteor. So it is the, the debris that's falling into the atmosphere and burning up to produce that spark of light. The meteorite is whatever manages to get back down to the surface of the Earth. Um, that only really happens with fairly large meteoroids. Um, the smaller things, millimetres or less, they burn up uh, in the upper atmosphere and we never see them get down to the ground. Most impacts, as it turns out, are very, very far from civilization. That's not particularly surprising. Two-thirds of our planet, of course, are covered in oceans. Yes. So the vast majority of impacts we never even see. Some occur, of course, about one-third are going to occur across land, but still the majority of the land is still uninhabited. Places like Russia, for example, vast swathes of Russia are sparsely populated, to say the least. Um, and in Russia, in 1908, there was the Tunguska event. So this was um, not an impact as such. It's referred to as an impact, but it wasn't actually one. This was um, an object about 60 to 190 metres across. We don't know exactly what size because no one actually saw the event itself. But it's a, a meteorite that exploded before it hit the ground. Um, and it flattened forests for over 2,000 square kilometres. Yes. So a 
fast, fast way. That's true. That image, if, if no one has seen an image of that event, it's certainly something to have a look at because it gives you some idea of just what it must have been like if you had been close enough, mm. which, you know, to experience something like that. Yeah. So the blast wave was extremely powerful. Um, people, uh, someone is recorded as having said uh, of the event when when people finally actually saw the, the, the devastation caused by it, that it looked like a, a giant had combed his hair because of all the trees were flattened in the same direction. So it looked like someone had uh, combed the, these vast trees over. Sometimes you do get events happening, of course, closer to civilization. And more recently, we did have um, the Chelyabinsk uh, meteor, which was in, oh, let me remember, 20, 20, was it 12 or 15? I can't remember, I'm afraid. I was meant to write that down, but unfortunately, I forgot to. And that was a 20-meter rock, so a bit smaller, um, which again crashed into the atmosphere above... Russia. I'm sure you know no one's targeting Russia. It's just a big country, so things happen there so quite a lot. From a statistical point, point of view, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. um, and again, it exploded before it hit the ground. Uh, now, in this case, it happened close enough to civilization that unfortunately people were actually injured by this. Um, about 1,500 people were harmed. No, um, no fatalities, okay. which is great to hear. Um, but unfortunately, the it was very a peculiar event because. When, when these things explode, um, you, of course, of course, first get the flash of light because light travels faster than sound and the sound wave is the blast wave that comes out of it. So you see this bright flash. And, of course, people went to their windows in order to have a look at what was going on. And, unfortunately, a few seconds later, that's when the blast wave hit. So many of the, uh, the injuries that did happen were, unfortunately, from imploding windows, um, which is... Not very pleasant. No. But thankfully, the injuries were relatively minor. It could have been a lot worse. It is, however, worth mentioning that the chances of being injured due to a meteoroid strike or due to one of these air explosion impacts are extremely tiny. But nonetheless, to be on the safe side, various space agencies have tracked all of the major uh, objects in our solar system up to a, uh, down to a certain size um, in order to try to determine which ones might cause truly severe damage. Because neither of these events, if they'd actually struck, would have been absolutely vast. They would have been big, don't get me wrong, yeah. um, but they would not have been the, the global catastrophe sort of yeah. thing. And we know that when you get to the really large size objects then we're looking at as you say global level yeah well one is expected to uh, is thought to have um, been instrumental in the extinction of the dinosaurs so as uh, 65 odd million years ago um, now Cholubinsk and Tunguska size events happen maybe twice to three times every century um, smaller events of course happen far more often larger events can be much much longer besides so for an asteroid similar to the one that wiped out the dinosaurs you're looking once every hundred million years or more so still a very long time before we have to necessarily worry about them we have tracked enough objects to say that we are relatively safe relatively speaking um so now we can get back to some more interesting science instead so we track these large objects in space we can measure the frequency of small meteors with radar in order to understand the smallest objects but believe it or not, the mid-sized ones are actually the most difficult because they're rare. 
So we only get a handful of them occurring. So you need a really, really large collecting area to understand them. And the reason why we want to understand them is partly, obviously, from a um, preservation of our cells point of view. But also, we have loads of satellites and spacecraft flying around in space. We need to make certain that these things aren't going to be impacted by these objects, which are traveling 20 to 70 kilometers per second. These are incredibly fast chunks of rock and metal flying around. So we need to be very careful. So how do we go about studying them? Well, why did I mention the moon at the very start? It's because we actually have a vast testing facility, which is called the moon. The surface of the moon is a fantastic place to try to look for meteoroid impacts. There's no atmosphere, so we don't see them burn up. Instead, we see the impact itself. And meter-sized sort of objects, the sort of mid-sized ones that we need better statistics on but can't because they're so rare, those are perfect, the sort of size ones that produce vast flashes of light on the moon that are very, would be very difficult to see if you were looking at the full moon, but if you're looking at the dark part of the moon during a crescent moon or a new moon, then you've got a very good chance of seeing them. But why am I mentioning them today? Well, for those of you who noticed last month, uh, in fact a few days ago from the time we were recording this, we had the total lunar eclipse. Now this is when the Earth passes in front of the Sun um, and blocks the light uh, getting to the Moon. So the Moon goes dark. It doesn't go completely dark, instead it turns this sort of red-orange colour, which is the light from the Sun being bent around the Earth by the atmosphere, the air that we breathe. But during this total lunar eclipse, when lots and lots of people were watching the moon, believe it or not, there was a fairly sizable lunar impact. So a meteoroid that hit the surface of the moon produced a bright, a bright flash. Um, and incredibly, it was actually discovered uh, earliest by amateur astronomers observing the moon um, or observing the recordings of... Um, larger observatories that were making and um, streaming them out into the uh, rest of the world. It was later picked up by these large observatories, like uh, the Los Angeles Griffith Observatory, and in fact by our very own live stream here at the Royal Observatory Greenwich. So this is a case of citizen science very much in action, um, where the observatories themselves either didn't notice or couldn't verify the impacts until amateur astronomers and the general astronomical community got together in order to say, there's this thing we noticed, can you check if it's there? Um, and of course it was. So interestingly, we here at the Royal Observatory noticed both the event which happened at 04.41 and 43 seconds, and that's universal time, or Greenwich Mean Time. Um, that impact has been widely reported. But we've also noticed another one, potentially brighter than the first. It occurred at 04.43 and 44 seconds, again, universal time, or GMT. Um, however, despite many attempts, we can't yet confirm this. And there's a very good reason for this. Um, the second one, the one that we're talking about, that happened two minutes after the widely publicised one, that happened on the bright limb of the moon, where the, where the, um, the light was still quite strong. Most observatories were, of course, focusing on the darker part of the moon. So they'd ah. settle their instruments to show the nice bright red colour of the moon. 
You might ask, why weren't we doing that? Well, that's because shortly after the total uh, lunar eclipse began, we started to get clouds Cloud, here at yeah. the Royal Observatory. <laughs> so unfortunately, um, well, or perhaps fortunately, the cloud actually uh, made it easier for us to observe the brighter limb of the moon. We saw this flash. We have yet to be able to confirm it because no one else, unfortunately, appears to have seen it. And in any case, their observations of that brighter limb of the moon are saturated. So you can't see a bright flash even if one were to occur. So the question is, can anyone listening actually help? Citizen Science in Action, again, maybe you noticed something. Maybe you saw our event. I repeat, it's at 04.43 and 44 seconds UT. Um, if anyone has noticed this, please do let us know. Uh, go on our Twitter page at RMG Astronomers um, and ROG Astronomers even and let us know. Uh, interestingly, these impacts may have been large enough to have created new craters visible to the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which is a mapping um, orbiter of the Moon currently working. So maybe there are some new divots on the surface of the Moon which it can now look for. Yeah, and that would be the perfect confirmation about both bright flashes. Absolutely, actually. yeah. So this is very exciting, actually. <laughs> um, and I think, as you pointed out, it's a great example of citizen science in action. Mm -hmm. So it turns out, actually, that our stories that we've chosen this month <laughs> do share citizen science as a common theme. Because for this month, I've actually chosen to talk about the discovery of a rare exoplanet. And it was discovered by citizen scientists working through Kepler data on the Exoplanet Explorers website. Oh, fantastic. So you might be wondering why I've called it a rare exoplanet, because we've got almost 4,000 exoplanets that we know of. But it's because this exoplanet lies in a size gap known as the Fulton Gap which is a range between one and a half and two Earth radii where very few exoplanets have been found. So just a, a couple of times the size of the Earth and we've, we've rarely found things like that. Yeah, and it actually turns out that the Fulton Gap has come about because of Kepler data, because if you look at the statistics of the planet sizes that have been detected by Kepler, um, you can actually see two distinct groupings forming. Mm -hmm. So the first group contains your rocky Earths and super Earths. And then there's a second group containing what they call the mini Neptunes. Yes. But yeah. there's a dip between those two, which happens to cover a radius in terms of Earth radio of one and a half to two. So there's definitely a gap there. And mm -hmm. so now we've found an exoplanet that falls within this gap. So the exoplanet, which is known as K2288BB, and every now and then I'm tempted to add another 8 after BB because of Star Wars, so if I do throw <laughs> that out, I'm very sorry. Um, but the exoplanet is located 226 light years away in the constellation of Taurus. So if you go out tonight, you won't be able to pinpoint which one it is, but you can give the constellation a wave because the exoplanet lies within that constellation. And the exoplanet itself actually lies in a stellar system consisting of a pair of 
dim, cool M-type stars. And these two stars are separated by about 5.1 billion miles or 8.2 billion kilometers. And if you're trying to get an understanding of what that separation is like, it means that the stars are actually separated by roughly six times the distance between the Sun and Saturn. So it gives you Ooh. some idea of how far these two stars are separated. So a binary system, but not a particularly close binary. Exactly. And um, it turns out that one of the M-type stars is about half the mass and size of our sun. And the second one is about a third of the size of our, and mass of our sun. And this exoplanet orbits the smaller of the two stars and completes one orbit every 31.3 days. So it's definitely whipping around its parent star. Um, but the good news is that it orbits within the star's habitable zone. Ah. So, of course, that means that liquid water may exist on the surface of the planet. But I chose this particular one um, for a number of reasons. One, because it's rare. Two, because it was a citizen science discovery, but also because of the very interesting path that led to the discovery of this exoplanet. So we need to go all the way back to 2014 to start our journey of discovery. And that's because in 2014, the Kepler spacecraft started its K2 observing mode. Um, and that's where the K2 in the exoplanet's name comes from, because it's from Kepler K2 observing mode um, and in this particular observing mode Kepler looked at different patches of the sky and that meant that the spacecraft would reposition itself hmm. so it would do a three-month campaign reorient itself and point towards another patch of the sky so this this all came about because the original Kepler satellite which uh, is what K2 still was, um, it, it uh, partly broke, didn't it? So its, it's, it's reaction wheels no longer worked. It couldn't point itself particularly accurately. Yeah. And so there needed to be a change in the way that it was run in order to continue exactly. to do science. And I think that's part of the thing is that when something goes wrong, you still try and make something work when something goes wrong. Because especially if you've got a billion dollar spacecraft up yeah. there, um, the last thing you want is to terminate science. Yes. Um, especially in early days. So um, so that's what they did. So we they started out this new observing campaign and we just keep, you know, changing the position of the spacecraft every three months or so. But because of that change in orientation, um, astronomers were actually a bit concerned that because of that repositioning, um, you'd introduce some systematic errors in your measurements. So, of course, they're trying with Kepler, they were looking for transit events produced by exoplanets so of course if you've just reoriented the spacecraft perhaps those first couple of days of observations after you've just changed position are not as reliable possibly full of errors and that so hmm. what they did was for any of the data that fell in a couple of days after that repositioning and um, the software that they used to analyze the data would actually just ignore ignore it yes ignore it so now we leap forward to 2017, where a research team began searching through Kepler data and picked up two likely planetary transits in that stellar system in Taurus. Now, at this point, you'd think if you've got two transit events, you can safely say we found something. Mm. But in order for them to actually make the claim that they found the, you know, a new exoplanet, 
they needed a third, third. transit. Yes. So, the, so if you have a single transit, then it could be anything. It could be a mistake be in your yeah. in your data. If you've got two transits, then there's a good chance there's something there, but that could be two different objects passing in front exactly. of the star. You need three equally spaced in order to know that it's definitely the same object going around. Yeah, and so, of course, they didn't see three in yeah. the data set that they had. And that was because they were not working with the full data, data set. set. <laughs> and I think it's at this point that you all know where I'm heading with the story. Yeah. Um, they didn't have the full data set because obviously the data set had been trimmed. Yes. Because of those first few days of observations, <laughs> which were full of errors, as they assumed would come from reorienting the spacecraft. However, in the time between 2014 and 2017, astronomers had actually figured out how to correct the data mm -hmm. for these systematic errors. So what they did was, using the new software, they reanalyzed all of the data, including those first few days now, thereby extending their data sets. But the new candidates were never fully visually inspected. Right. So they had a new list of potential exoplanet detections. And as you mentioned, sometimes with software that we use, it can pick up things and flag it as being a transit. But then when the good old human computer has a look at <laughs> yes. it, you realize, no, that's this, that's this, because yeah. we're much better at being able to see patterns in the data. And that's why it's really good to have humans looking at it, because we're good at identifying, as I said, errors in the data and things that really are transit. So instead of the researchers going through the data, what they did was they took all the newly reprocessed data and added it to the citizen science project called Exoplanet Explorers. And they let the public search through the data to see if the public could find any transits that had been missed. Mm. So it's probably good to point out at this stage that most of the exoplanets have actually come about from using software and algorithms to pick up the transits and then they're just subsequently verified at a later stage but as good as a computer or a piece of software is sometimes it misses things and so the citizen scientists went through and in May of 2017 a group of people noticed that elusive third transit <laughs> and from a very animated discussion on the website um, they made a note that they think this was an earth-sized candidate exoplanet mm. so this naturally caught the attention of the research team who had been hoping to find a third transit and having verified everything they found the third transit which confirmed the existence of this exoplanet in the stellar system in Taurus oh, fantastic but having got that, of course, you need to learn a little bit more about your planet. So they began follow-up observations using a number of space-based facilities, as well as some ground-based telescopes to learn a little bit more about this exoplanet in question. And that's why we know now what size it is, because based on those observations, they've estimated that it's around 1.9 times the Earth's size, or basically half the size of Neptune. So it could be rocky, 
or it could be a gas-rich planet similar to Neptune. So that's still part of the coming research on this exoplanet. And this ties into what I was discussing at the beginning because this exoplanet then falls within that size gap. And it's very important because scientists suspect that that size gap we see is likely the result of intense starlight breaking up atmospheric molecules and eroding the atmospheres away of some of the planets, thereby creating this gap. So you end up with these just rocky planets, mm -hmm. or you end up with, as they call, the mini-Neptunes. So because K2288BB falls inside the gap, it may provide us with a case study of planetary evolution and may also help us fully understand why we're seeing this gap in the Kepler data. So this is actually going to help a lot with understanding the formation of planetary systems. And who knows, we may well find some more exoplanets that fall within this gap, particularly even though Kepler's mission has now come to an end. I'm sure there's probably still tons of data that needs to be worked through. But we've also got the new generation TESS, which is up yes, there as well. Absolutely. And TESS is going to be generating enormous amounts of data. Mm -hmm. So, of course, this opens up possibilities for more citizen science mm -hmm. programs. And so for any of our listeners out there who are keen on becoming citizen scientists, there are actually a number of astronomy-related citizen science projects that they can get involved in, ranging from hunting to exoplanets, all the way to assisting in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. <laughs> so who knows? One of our listeners could make the next big discovery in astronomy. Well, let's hope. Well, thanks, Patricia, for that story. Uh, hopefully some of our listeners may get involved in citizen science of their own. Now, uh, you're all going to have your chance to vote on the two stories that we provided you today on our Twitter feed. That's at ROG Astronomers. Uh, the results from our last Twitter poll are in... And uh, last week, I was talking about the search for dark matter within the, the spaces between galaxies in vast clusters. And Patricia was, of course, talking about the New Horizons probe passing by uh, Ultima Thule um, and its flyby. And I can reveal that... Patricia won that one with 58% of the vote, uh, only 42% for my dark matter clusters this time round. So, uh, a brilliant start for Patricia, and I'm sure she'll uh, give me a run for my money in this next one as well. So that's at ROG Astronomers, please vote on there. Until next month, and that's all from Look Up. Mm -hmm.